Bonjour and welcome to Null Pointers with your hosts, Mark, Steven, and Gerald. And today we'll be talking about clean code, so stay tuned. But before we get to today's topic, I read some news today that says Intel is actually faster than the M1 chip from Apple. So Intel has made a benchmark. It cherry-picked some people. It's been called out like that. So some people say they actually cherry-picked their results. And they said Intel is still faster than the M1 chip. And battery life comparison, and they compared it there with the Intel i7 something whatnot with the MacBook Air, uh, which was an interesting comparison because first performance and then battery life, you take the weaker model, but hey, it's ads, am I right? So you got to sell them. But this means Mac versus PC, the epic battle, it continues. It continues. Yeah, still kind of remain skeptical, like you said, about that kind of stuff. Like the company putting out the product, doing the benchmarks. I'd, I'd rather see someone independent. <laughs> maybe do some benchmarks on that. But um, yeah, I think it, that that kind of stuff, we even have a saying for it here in the Netherlands, but I don't think it's, it translates very well on a podcast. But I just, um, just say it in Dutch. Um, no, nah, nah, let's, nah. let's not go there. It has to do with toilets and ducks. So I'll leave our listeners Toilets, toilets and ducks. Okay, yes. now my imagination is running wild. <laughs> I'll leave our listeners with that one. But yeah, to be honest, I don't really care that much for the battle i mean may the best win but I, I don't really mind who wins should there be a winner no i don't think so i mean well there will always be like a winner and and people will compare and one or the other which one is better faster whatever uh but you know they're just i, I think this is good because intel has uh lonely up there at the top you had amd of course uh, which is, you know, it, that went kind of up and down, I think. I've been out of the hardware game for a long time, but uh, I think Intel has had a monopoly for a long time and that at least looking at it from the outside as a person who doesn't know too much about it, it seems that they got pretty lazy or uh, at least failed to attract like the, the, the people that could take things to the next level. Um, so it's it's good that there's now you know um, actual competition that will wake them back up and um, hopefully they will try to top them, become the winner and then and then arm comes back and says, no, we are the best and we are the best and you know only the consumer can win because we get the best hardware. Absolutely. And I think from some point of view, I mean I'm geeky enough to to dive in a bit deeper than just like the frontoid tabloids battles that are going on and I Fully agree with Stephen. The benchmark that Intel did was on their terms, so it was like not a neutral ground. They didn't use any benchmarking CPU thingy to make the comparison, and so I think yeah, you, you have to take those things with a grain of salt. And they clearly also chose some tasks where they knew that there was some special instruction set in that software, which was optimized for running on Intel CPUs. But it's still interesting where this goes. And I we did actually an entire episode on this on ARM-based computing, dear listener. So if you are bored after this episode, be sure to check out our archives. And the other thing that I always still have to keep in mind is that the M1 chip, the ARM-based chip from Apple, it's still quite new. 
and they are some of my favorite developing tools still missing out, uh, or you have to get them fresh off the presses, fresh off the nightly so that they will work. And our good friend of the show, and I'm pretty sure I'll butcher his last name right now, Daniel Hendricks, he did actually a blog post showing how the M1 Apple machine does when doing some mobile Xamarin.net works. So if you are interested in, if it's already time to pull the trigger on your new Apple hardware with the M1s, be sure to check out that blog post. I will forward it to my boss straight away. (laughs) Well done, Steve. And I also heard that, you know, that machine is something that you can keep very clean um, you know, you can just wipe it off um, so it does never get dirty. Um, so I don't know. Do we have something else that we want to talk about, which is clean? Well, we could talk about Stephen's clean code and why we should care about writing clean code, Stephen. Oh. We, we should definitely not talk about my desk because that is, <laughs> that is far from clean at the moment. It's kind of full of crap, but not, not the literal crap. I'll, I'll give you that. But no, clean code. Why should we care? Well, I, I think as developers, we should definitely care because in, in for one, you might not be the only one working on a product. Other people might be as well. And that could mean that whatever you're writing does not really read well for other developers or might not be as easy to understand. So it, it becomes definitely an issue if you have multiple people working on it because you want your code to be maintainable by as many people as possible. If your teammates don't understand what you're writing on a daily basis, that that's never a good thing. And because everyone needs to kind of speak the same language here, it always helps in, in productivity as well. Because that way, because you're all speaking the same dialect, so to speak, you're able to make a lot more headway. Yeah, absolutely. I think, but that's hard, right? But these three things kind of like hook into each other because make writing readable code, uh, which is easy to understand for others, makes it more maintainable. And then you can retain that productivity um, because their people are not yep. spending time uh, that, that breaking their heads over what you are trying to, to actually do here, but they can just mm-hmm. read it, understand it, and work on top of that. I think you touched on the, some very good points there, Gerald and Steven. Uh, I would agree. Readable code, I think, beats a lot of high performing code or some super smart code where people try to outsmart the CPU or make it more efficient. And for me, generally it comes down to having maintainable code. And with that, you also have a continuous flow of productivity. So it can be, so some people argue writing clean code is, it takes a bit more effort. So you're not quite as fast in hammering out that code that you want to get out. But when you look at a, a longer term, because you write your code in a clean fashion and in a maintainable fashion and in a readable fashion, you'll actually be able to produce over a long time continuous value with that code base. And I think that's something you always have to keep in mind. I mean, usually you write a new app once, but then it lives on and then you have to add on new features or things change. So that means you might not see that code again for months at a time. And then you have to get back. So that means I think you always are quite happy to then find a code base that is well-maintained or readable and uh, you can get going without a loss of, oh my God, I first need to invest 48 hours straight to just understand what is going on in this one single class here because it's so complicated. Absolutely, absolutely. So that is all very true. Um, But you you had that meme a while back about being a... 10 times developer. Um, I don't even know what made Rockstar you a developer. 
Rock, yeah, well, no, but there, there was also the 10x developer, right? Uh, and the ninja developer. Uh, and a ninja developer and the unicorn developer. You have to be it all. Uh, so, but is this, do you have to do clean code? Why are we calling this clean code? This is this is a term that's invented by Uncle Bob, right? I believe so. I believe, or at least he was a very strong advocate for writing this clean code. And as a such, it's a marketing word. It's uh, it's uh, not some, I think it's just something that sounds good. It's clean. It's not a... It's exactly. It's kind of like, you know, it's an, an indie open term. It's not trademarked or registered, but, you know, clean code, everyone knows what you mean. But do you have to know clean code with everything that we're going to talk about in this episode to be a good developer? Is that what defines a good developer? Just knowing that clean code and then you're done forever, basically? Is that the only skill that you need to have? I wouldn't say so. I mean, clean code in and of itself, yes, it is good to to adhere to some kind of standard in that regard. I certainly don't clean code on every little pet project that I do, (laughs) typically because I'm not, well, 99 out of 100 times I'm the one who's doing it and no one else will ever see it. So yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily make you a bad developer if you never or sometimes don't do it, I would say. But I would say that if, if you're working in a team on, on something that multiple people need to understand, it uh, if you don't adhere to it, it kind of makes you the, the odd one out, I would say. Yeah, I agree with Steven. I think you don't really have to be a clean code developer or know all the clean codes rules to be able to write code. I think it's not even mandatory to write code that produces any value to the business. It's just a skill that you can learn. And uh, I think it's a very helpful skill. It uh, has taught me many things and it sure has helped along the way to write larger code bases and also to uh, be able to work in teams together without um, yeah, the project starting out all nice and fun and then slowly sliding off into a huge ball of mess until you then somehow have to convince the business that uh, you have to start over again uh, and then ending up at the same point uh, after a couple of months or years. So I think that's like the goal of Clean Code is to give you some tools that will help you along the way to just write more maintainable code. And if you're writing a prototype or just trying out something really quickly, you don't have to follow along the rules, but uh, you wouldn't be the first developer who does a quick prototype, shows it to his boss, and then suddenly it becomes a mainstream production app. So just maybe keep that in the back of your head while writing your next prototype. Prototypes uh, that, that go into production, those, uh, those are the best kind, basically. <laughs> Yeah, the MVPs of the world. And I think we are mainly mobile developers here on the show. I mean, I know Gerald is doing some very heavy back-end stuff these days with uh, Mm -hmm. improving Mm -hmm. the life of many developers. But does it make sense to know clean code as a mobile developer? I think that's another question that you could ask because, I mean, mobile apps, they're mainly so small. And I I think it's always... Good to know, like, do you write a a lot of codes to sustain your app? I remember back in the old days, it's been quite a few years, a lot of mobile apps that were mainly very, very little business logic and mainly a lot of marketing content. So it has to be shiny, it had to be pretty and stuff like that. And you could cheat there. No one really cared how efficient the code was because it was so little code that was running. But uh, the... These days, mobile apps, uh, at least the ones that I write, they have quite a bit of logic in them. I lately compared 
one of our latest apps and it has about the same amount lines of code than one of our backend things that also did a lot of stuff. And I know lines of code is maybe not the best metric to say something is complex or and doing it right all the, at the same time. But uh, it still gives you a feel of how large something can grow. And these mobile apps, they can have quite a large code base. That being said, Gerald, when I Google clean code, one of the terms that always comes up is this thing solid. So what is this solid all about? I will tell you all about solid, but I had one thing to add to things that you just said, because specifically I feel for the whole Xamarin space, um, because, you know, suddenly we're all writing mobile stuff in C Sharp, um, and also we can share code between our backend and our mobile app. So I don't think it's as simple anymore as, you know, we are writing this um, small little app and we only have to worry about the mobile developer that has to know um, his or her way around it. But now, you know, you can also see other people coming in who take a look at the code and they can um, read all the C sharp. And as long as you, you know, apply the um, solid principles and all the clean code things that we're talking about here, um, then, you know, they suddenly also know their way around mobile apps. Sure, there are things that um, are still specific to the mobile paradigm, but, um, you know, um, it, it makes the code more readable, more understandable, and someone who has never worked with mobile before um, can suddenly find their way in that project too. Um, so that's another reason to um, definitely do that in mobile apps as well. So solid, uh, that's what you asked me about, Mark, but, you know, I just talk about whatever I want. You can't force me. Um, so solid stick is an acronym. Yes, yeah, stick to the script. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's jumping chapters, man. This is this is so unprofessional, Gerald. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I just I just improvised this whole thing. I wing it. Yeah, I wing no, it. we sit bit. down. We we put on four points on the post-it, and you just leave yeah. one out. Come yeah, on. and, yeah, and sorry. where were you at the table read? Yeah, I it's, <laughs> it's you know I I had to go. Jeez. It was whenever you need to go, you yeah. need to go. I'm sorry. That was that was not very solid of you, Gerald. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so it's an acronym and it stands for um, Single Responsibility Principle, Open Closed Principle, Liskov Substitution Principle, Interface Segregation Principle, and Dependency Inversion. So that's just from the top of my head because, you know, clean code yes. is my my only thing that I read before I go to sleep and the thing I wake up to. Um, no, so do it. Actually, maybe that's a good thing to, to put out there, right? Uh, because I know the basics of this stuff, but I don't read the book like every week. Um, so there's probably stuff that I've forgotten or I'm not doing. Um, this is this is not the thing to do, right? You just have to take the things that apply to your project and um, that make sense to you that, that basically stick. Uh, so that might be also a good advice to offer at this point. Um, so, but if we if we take a look at all the things that I just mentioned, let's just start with the S, so the single responsibility principle. I think that is something that is very close to the whole object-oriented pro programming model as well, uh, which just means you know you have one class and that does one thing. So you don't want to uh, make one giant class um, that that has twenty thousand lines. That basically is your whole. Um, uh, your whole executable, your whole program, but you want to divide it up in different classes and all the classes have their own responsibility, uh, which makes it you know easy to find the class that's responsible for something and maybe swap that out or fix a bug or 
do whatever. Um, so that is the single responsibility thing. Yeah, that's the single responsibility thing. I think when you do not know this rule or some people that do not follow this rule very intensely, they tend to have classes that grow and grow and grow. So you got like these godlike classes. So a god class is a class that does everything in your app. So whatever you do, you may you might have multiple classes, but in the end, all of your logic is in one class. And that's then the god class. And the Single responsibility principle should remind you that if your class is just one, more than one thing, it might be time to split it into two classes. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts, Stephen? Well, I, I get the feeling that you're you're both kind of bashing on my utilities.cs class, which mm-hmm. contains all my utility methods for everything. <laughs> Um, no, nah. but in, in all fairness, you would never bash on you, Stephen. Oh. Not not while on microphone. Okay, that's good. I'll uh, <laughs> let's save that for after. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it it's definitely something that if you're in the object oriented world, as Gerald already mentioned, it it should kind of be instilled upon you somewhere because of the the whole. Um, normalization of your your data model and your your object model and all that stuff um so abstracting responsibilities is definitely definitely something that i think also kind of comes naturally if you just do it long enough i mean i I don't necessarily think very much about uh, about that specific topic to be very honest yeah i think that's a very good point you touch upon And, and gerald said it before i mean it can be that at some point in time you had formal training in these principles and you learned what the single responsibility principle was or what open-close means, like you should be open for extension but closed for change and how that can be violated. But there might come a point in time where you do no longer actively remember those things. And I think it's if it becomes a habit, uh, these things, you know, like a lot of these patterns they are not rules they are not the law so you do not have to follow them you can violate them Uh, but often often they are there to to help you along and if you know when it makes sense to apply them it can become like a habit and then you no longer really think about hey uh, this I should do this like this and this because that clearly states that I should do it this and that way but um you then sometimes develop like a feeling, like when you read through code, like, ah, oh, something is not right here. I, I can't finger point it yet quite, but something should be different. Uh, I don't know if you get that feeling. Yeah, so I, I think I suffer from that. Uh, you know, I basically know all the things um, in here and, you know, the notes that we carefully put together just before this episode, we've, we've taken the whole day to do that. But, um, you know, if you ask me, like, what is this exact term, then I might not know. But if you start talking about it, what it is, then I'm like, you know, oh, oh, that's it. Yeah, sure. That that makes sense. And then I explain the whole thing. So even if you don't know the precise terminology or whatever, um, it, it might still all make sense to you. But then speaking of which, Mark, explain to us, we've had the S and the O. What is the Liskov substitution principle? Well, it's mainly there to make you sound really smart. If it just comes from the top of your head, like, ah, yeah, the Liskov substitution principle, obviously, you know, you got to speak like that. No. So the, the LSP, as it can be shortened. So the, the, the L in solid is an acronym, which is the LSP. Okay, this makes sense. Totally. Yeah, it's an acronym for acronyms. Yeah, because 
we developers are lazy and yeah. So the Liskov thingy, what it mainly says is uh, it goes about inheritance. So the solid thing is mainly about OO and it's a selection of a few practices that you can take out of that. And the LSP inheritance, so what it basically says is if you inherit from a class, you should follow along how the class originally was intended to do stuff. So if your base class says, hey, read X, you should just continue on reading stuff and not suddenly start writing stuff in the background. And sometimes you can see code that will go on a abstract class and it will iterate through stuff and then it will have like a little downcast check like if it is this class then do something different or otherwise continue and that's a bit of a leaky abstraction one could say and the other thing is like you are violating probably the lsp there because your child class is doing something different than it propagates uh, through the base class method signature so that's LSP. So throwing the ball back at Stephen, um, we still have got the I in solid, the interface segregation principle. You end up with I, me. So the, the interface abstraction stuff or segregation principle, if you want to go the official route, I think that's the basically something that also kind of comes natural at this point, for me at least. And that's to, to have some uh, functionalities hidden in an interface or hidden um, abstracted away behind an interface i should probably say um, so for example let's say you have a analytics class um, you make an interface that has all the methods that you need and you make an actual implementation of that interface and because of that you could at some point swap it out for a different type of analytic service without having to adjust any other code because it it all references the interface right so um instead of programming against a specific class you're programming against the interface and and the actual implementation can differ and i think that's also something that comes into play when trying to test stuff or unit test um, where you might need to have a, a test version of a class or a mock version that would also then use that interface, right? Yeah, I think we already also um, touched a lot of the D, the dependency inversion, uh, because that, you know, relies, well, technically it doesn't rely on the interfaces, I guess, um, because what it means at the core, I think, is that you just, um, it, it says dependency inversion, but that's also mentioned a lot like dependency injection that you, you know, provide the dependency to the class that will be using it. So whether that's a, a method or an entire class, um, you can just say, hey, class, you need to actually um, do those analytics. Okay, I want you to use um, this class. Um, so you you hand that class to the class that's going to be consuming it. Um, and that will have all the logic to use the analytic service of App Center, of Google Analytics. I don't know. Uh, and it doesn't care, actually, what the implementation is. Uh, but, you know, those interfaces can come in very handy with that because uh, whenever you just have the interfaces, uh, you know what the contract is. And again, then, you know, the class that's consuming it doesn't care what the implementation is. It just knows there is an interface and I can call log error or log exception. It doesn't really matter uh, what the reason is. You can very easily swap this out. So interfaces are technically not required for it, but it will often go hand in hand because uh, that just makes the whole dependency inversion or dependency injection so much more 
powerful. And if you even want to take it to the next level, uh, you also have uh, dependency injection uh, containers uh, where you will just say, um, hey, I want to register this interface. Um, and whenever I ask you again for this interface, uh, you have to give me this concrete implementation. Um, and if your container is advanced enough, uh, then you can use that with the constructor and you just have to register your interfaces and the concrete implementation uh, in that container once. And then whenever the constructor is called and that also goes through your DI container, then um, it will automatically know like, hey, I have a registration for this interface, so I will just inject that for you. And you don't have to worry about doing that uh, yourself manually anymore. So that is really cool. Um, and basically the, the why you want to do this is if you start saying uh, var foo is new analytic service, um, and you do that everywhere in your code, then whenever analytic service is going to change into Google analytic service, then you have to go through all the far new is analytic service and you have to rename them all. Um, and if you do it like this, um, if you want to do it like absolutely correct, then you only have to new up that class uh, whenever you register it in your container. And then that is the only place where you uh, have to change that implementation for it uh, to work in the rest of your application. So how cool is that? Pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I know, right? So Mark, you volunteered now by interrupting me. What mm -hmm. is a couple of DI containers that you know from the top of your head? Uh, from the top of my head, uh, TinyIOC, uh, Splat, the built-in thing from ASP.NET Core, Xamarin forms very complicated thing to use for making depends injection. <laughs> Running out of stuff right now. Ninjax, of course, the Ninja depends injection. Yeah, out of fuck, I think is one too. Out of fuck, yeah, that's always nice to say. Uh, yeah. You write it actually with an A, but no one believes you when you spell it out the first time. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yeah, that these these DI containers they can be a great help and. It depends where you want to use them. So if you're writing a web service, you will be interested in different performance metrics than if you're writing, let's say, a client app. Might, may that be a mobile application or desktop application or probably even the new Blazor front-end applications that are coming along. If you use DI there, you're interested in different topics. So mainly it's like the server, once it's running, it can it's got time to warm up. Um, so it will be long living. Uh, when you've got a client application, your DI, the first uh, time it starts up, it should be just as quick uh, in giving you stuff, but it might not have to recycle as many elements and go through those things. So you just have like a bit of difference there. So if your favorite DI container from the back end is one of those big behemoths, you might want to switch it out for something smaller, which will do fine on your client application. Another thing that I really like with these DI containers, and you have touched on a lot of points there, Gerald, is whenever you start out in a new project, since you got like that single point to change and with the entire dependency inversion thinking, it in a in a nice world, the backend would be built first and then you would build your mobile front-end client because then everything is already set. But in many projects, everything happens at the same time. And what you can do with these uh, dependency inversion things and these DI containers is you can swap in and out really easily bits as Gerald just explained. And you could do that like for real implementations of hooking up to your backend service or working with a little stub application which is hard coded into your app so you can make those awesome demos to your clients. 
Uh, those are things that are really handy. And these are like principles or patterns that you can use to improve your development life and make it easier and make your customers happier, make Gerald happier, make Stephen happier. I mean, it's just like win, win, win all over the place. And that's something really nice. Speaking about patterns, if we look at mobile and we have mentioned Zarin Forms before, I think one pattern that is very prevalent in the Zarin Forms space is this MVVM pattern. So we did a show on that thing, I believe. Um, check out the archives after the show. But that's like one mobile pattern that we have. Are there like other patterns that you, what's your favorite pattern, Stephen? My favorite pattern? Yeah, your wow. favorite. My favorite. You know, the one that you got in the picture frame? Oh, hanging oh, out that, in the park. One. The singleton, you mean? Because I only <laughs> have one picture frame. Um, no, nah, it's, there's like, for people who don't know, there's a, a great book on the design patterns by the gang of four, um, which I still have lying around somewhere here in this room. <laughs> I mean, somewhere on the desk, somewhere on the desk, somewhere in a box or something. Um, but don't let that fool you. It's actually uh, quite an insightful book if you're new to all the programming things and want to learn more about patterns. But yeah, definitely something like the singleton, which is basically one static class that handles um, all the interaction instead of making it into an instance. For example, like what, what we just mentioned, the dependency injection, there's or the, the or actually the abstraction behind the interface, I should say. There's there's like this this balance that I'm trying to find between do I really need an interface here or could I just make this a singleton class and never worry about it again. So that that's one of those things where I, I typically either go against solid, I guess, or, or just opt for the what works better in my case version. Commands in, in Xamarin Forms, they're quite essential for basically any type of interaction you want to do. I think Mark just somewhere here in the studio, Mark has found a, uh, a copy of the Gang of Four book. Yeah, leafing through it at the moment, getting inspired by all the wisdom in this book. Yeah, no, I think it's... um. It's quite a heavy book to read through, to be honest. Uh, I originally read through the Head First Design Patterns book. So that's, uh, if you're a bit more into gamification, stuff like that, I can highly recommend that one. Um, but the Design Patterns book, I think it's it's uh, it's a great way to start. There are some interesting concepts in there. Like uh, I remember reading about the Observer pattern. And the observer pattern in C sharp it's baked in, so it's literally whenever you use events, you're using the observer pattern. But back in the day when this came out, I think it was 1994 ish. Um, yeah, C sharp was not yet born, so no events built in into the system. I mean, it's keep just just keep that in mind uh, that it's it's not the, the latest book coming out. There will be no mention about WebAssembly in it, and you will not find how you can use the latest and greatest EF core with it. But you can see these these patterns, and I think that's something that's also really nice is once you've learned them, you can use them for quite a long time until they become obsolete. I mean, these days, some people say, ah, the Gang of Four book uh, with all the functional concepts, is it still valid? And since a lot of us still write OO daily, I think they still have some merits to, to, to them. And you can see that... So this book written in 1994, we now have 2021 as we're recording this. 
yeah, you if you learned that, you ca- could keep on to that knowledge quite some time. It might not be the thing that you it, it will not be the be all end all that you will have to learn. You probably still want to learn some frameworks around it for writing your web apps or writing your front end pieces. But yeah, some some great value right in there using patterns. Yeah, we're basically proving every episode again that we're old. But other than that, I mean, yeah, maybe not that old. Maybe not that old. I no, think no. Uh, I don't know if I would have understood the principles back in the day when it came out. No, no. I, I have to agree with that. Yeah. Um, one one more thing I I always like to ask. I mean, now we've we've talked about the solid principles. We went through them. Uh, we spoke about the gang of four patterns are everywhere. We said. Did you ever have those, or maybe you were that person yourself, going overboard with these things, you know, like becoming a pattern clean code fanatic and everything has to be clean code. And when someone shows you a piece of code, the only thing you will be doing is throwing around with these solid and clean code acronyms to tell them what they're doing wrong. I have a feeling that you are that person in our team, Mark. That you are that person who is like, no, no, it needs to be all the patterns. Am all the I patterns, right? yeah. I mean, you got to catch them all. It's the Pokemon thing. <laughs> you got 150 lines, and you have to squeeze all of them in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I I never went that uh, fanatic. I think it's just you know, um, sure you apply some things here and there, but it's not like I have to catch them all. No, definitely not. Sorry. Yeah, I I don't think I am the extremist, but I have seen or been in projects where people might have patterned for the sake of patterning, if that is a word. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, I I can fully see people getting too immersed immersed in into this whole thing and and losing kind of track of uh, what the actual goal is and, and if such a a thing is necessary for it. That's absolutely true. So, and I think that comes back to uh, something that we said earlier, right? Like whenever you start something small, it might be as a hobby or, you know, with, with everything basically, because agile is also very hip and happening still. Um, but you, you want to start small, right? And I think you should not worry about doing it all the right way because there is no one right way. Just write code, make it work and, you know, iterate on that and, um, as you do, make sure that it becomes more readable, more clean. Uh, something that I'm not sure where it is actually described is more of like the Boy Scout rule, right? Uh, that whenever you touch a piece of code, you will have to leave it more tidied than uh, when you found it. So, um, you know, the Boy Scouts do that whenever they go into the forest. They pick up all the the little papers and things and they make it uh, more tidy uh, than they actually found it. Um so that's something that you should definitely do. And I think as your product grows, um, sure, you will have a need for patterns because you suddenly have that need for um, testing and you need to swap out those interfaces. So you start wrapping all the things that are applicable into interfaces and you have that easy way to swap out all the things. I know Stephen uh, and I have worked on uh, for that that mobile application that we mentioned earlier, like, you know, the backend wasn't quite there yet or at least not the change that we needed. 
Uh, also, we try to do some UI testing where it comes in very handy that you have a predictable data set, which is not very handy whenever you start communicating with a real REST service uh, and then you're doing end-to-end -end testing suddenly. Um, so what you can also then do is very easily swap out an interface that has uh, your mocked data store. So it will just have that fixed uh, data inside of arrays and whatever, just in memory uh, that you can very easily um, run through and, and do your tests on. So, uh, you know, uh, just, just let that evolve together with you and your application. By the way, on testing, we also did an episode. So go through mm. the archives and find that one. We could do an episode where we just mention all yes. the episodes we did. Yeah, we exactly. do the one, one the one with all the episodes, yeah. Yeah, the episode index episode. Hmm. Maybe one day. Yeah, no, I, I still have to now disappoint you at this point, Gerald. I never fully went overboard on this role. I remember being once in a project with uh, a senior developer who applied all the patterns and everything had to be separated and everything had to be as modular as possible and in the end i remember following along those rules and everything taking so much longer like the most mundane task you had to write three interfaces with three implementations and then put it in some xml file so we could replace the ioc container and a snap of a finger which we never did by the way and you can totally overdo it with these solid rules and i know that there are many horror stories of people not delivering values anymore to their customers because they were writing tests, because they had to get this test coverage up to 100%, uh, even though it maybe made zero to no sense to make tests around certain areas. And I think the, the, the challenge always is how much of these things should you apply or how much does it actually make sense? And uh, as you two have already said, a lot of this comes along with experience. So I fully understand if someone read the patterns book and suddenly you see patterns everywhere that you could apply. And so you go down the streets of putting patterns all over the place and then suddenly realizing, so hmm, now that wasn't very smart there because suddenly I have to work a lot longer to get to the same goal as I did before when I just made it simpler. But those are the, the trade-offs in, in our work where you have to know where what applies is best. And yeah, at the end of the day, I think learning these patterns and this clean code, they can be a great, um, a great help to write good code. But on the other hand, if you go into the extreme end, um, yeah, it can be a great pain to have to use them so never go full always, retard it's always yeah. good advice <laughs> yeah all right so i'm ready i want to know all about this how do i become proficient in clean coder foo how do i know all these things well the the most basic one is to read the book that you mentioned somewhere near the beginning of the episode the uncle bob book which we'll probably put in the show notes um, because that's where it, it all kind of started. And Gerald is already walking to the the book cabinet in our in our glorious studio. There's two. There's two. Oh, he has He's two. He's got so them. many. He's got wow. There's, there's two. What a fanboy. So there's two books that we'll link into the show notes, apparently. <laughs> which which are, well, I, I, I wouldn't say I read them like the Bible, but I, I at least skimmed through them, if, if that's a if that's an adequate response but that that's a, a good start at least and if you really want to know more about all the pattern stuff and all the 
the different solid principles. I'm pretty sure also in, uh, in a personal setting, a, a senior developer in your organization or someone else could, could definitely help you out there. And above all else, the internet, it's, it's a glorious resource for all these things. So that's definitely a, a place to go and also just, just give it a try. I mean, if you have an app already or, or some kind of small pet project, um, once you get a bit of a, a hold of the principles, take, take a look at it with those, those fresh, uh, views and, and see where you can maybe improve or, or implement some of these things. Or maybe one step before that, because, you know, that, that implies that you already know what to do exactly. But one thing that is often overlooked, there's a lot of people that um, sometimes come up to me and ask all things like, oh, how do you, would you create this app? How would you solve this? There is this big, big website, maybe you know it. Uh, it's called GitHub with actual mm -hmm. real apps on it. Um, and, you know, you can just see the source because that's what they do. Um, so, you know, just go in there and see how other projects that you might look up to or people that you might look up to and see how they're solving it. And you will probably often find that they're not that different from you. And they will just, you know, take a shortcut here and there and um, implement things a certain way. Um, so, you know, uh, just to see if you understood the, the principle right and uh, if that's how you would implement it. So uh, that can be a eye opener and definitely something that you can learn from as well. And with those wise words of Geraldus, the Verslers, we come to the end of the show, I think. So I think that wraps it up from our opinions and our experiences with the clean codes. We have been your hosts, Mark Alibone, Stephen Davison. And Gérald Fosluz. And let us and know Josh what are... <laughs> let us know. <laughs> so now you can decide what you want. <laughs> okay. And let us know, what are your experiences with Clean Code? On Twitter at nullpointers.io, our DMs are open. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe and until next week on Nullpointers. Bonsoir, croissant. <laughs>